0: At an ultra microscopic scale, our bodies are made up of atoms, which bind together to form the complex molecules, cells, organs, and entire beings that make us who we are. But atoms themselves are simple things a positively charged nucleus surrounded by a swarming cloud of electrons. How does something so minuscule and insignificant? add up to make something like us. There's one quantum rule that makes it all possible. How does it work? I'm Ethan Siegel and you're about to find out on this edition of the Starts with a Bang podcast. If we take a look at what's truly fundamental in this universe, we can go even deeper than Atoms. atoms themselves are made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. And while electrons may be fundamental particles, protons and neutrons themselves can be divided up into even smaller particles, quarks and gluons. If we take a look at the particles of the standard model, these are, to the best of our knowledge, the fundamental particles that are allowed and make up the universe. They include the quarks, they include leptons, such as electrons, electrons and neutrinos, the force-carrying particles, which include the gluons for the strong force, the photon for the electromagnetic force, and the W and Z bosons for the weak force, and also the Higgs, which is what gives mass to all the particles in the standard model. Despite the fact that each of these particles can have their own specific quantum properties like color, electric charge, and spin, each standard model particle on its own is not special. Any quark with its particular properties, for example, a plus two-thirds electric charge, a red color charge, being a member of the charm family, etc., is indistinguishable from and identical to any other red charm quark. Any plus spin one-half electron is identical to any other plus spin one-half electron. And any Higgs boson is identical to any other Higgs boson, and so on. If I have an electron, or even a proton, or a neutron, or an atomic nucleus, and I replace it with an identical particle, another electron, proton, or similar atomic nucleus, it will be indistinguishable. I will be making an indistinguishable change to that system. So given all of these generic types of particles, the fundamental ones and the composite ones that makes it up, yes, it's true they come in a huge variety of different types, but there are two generic ways of categorizing them all particles can be treated as either a fermion or a boson. And the only thing that defines whether your particle is a fermion or boson is what spin it has. If you have a half-integer spin then you are a fermion, one-half, three-halves, five-halves, you're a fermion. If you have an integer spin, zero, plus or minus one, plus or minus two, etc., you're a boson. Those are the only two ways of categorizing particles that have. There is no particle in existence that has a spin that's anything other than a multiple of plus or minus one-half. So if you're a fermion or if you're a boson, what consequences does that have? Well, if you are a fermion, then you should not be your own antiparticle. A fermion, like an electron, requires an antimatter counterpart an anti-fermion, in order to annihilate it. So something like an electron needs a positron, a quark with certain properties needs an anti-quark, and even a neutrino needs an anti-neutrino in order to annihilate. A boson, on the other hand, just needs another boson to annihilate. There's no such thing as an anti-boson. Fermions and anti-fermions both exist, but all bosons are the same class of particles. Fermions also make composite particles, right? You can bind multiple fermions together to make a composite particle. Three quarks make a baryon, like a proton or a neutron. A proton and an electron, another fermion, bind together to make atoms. Bosons are what bind these particles together. The baryons bind together because there are gluons being exchanged inside among the quarks, holding them together. A proton and electron bind together because the photon, the quantum boson that mediates the electromagnetic force, bind them together. But bosons only exist in the real world by themselves. They only exist solo. Fermions can bind together into composite states. Odd numbers of fermions together will act like a fermion. If I take three quarks together to make a baryon, that's an odd number. And so you get a spin one half or three halves particle out of it, right? Because if I take plus or minus a half and I add plus or minus a half and plus or minus a half, I can only get plus or minus a half or plus or minus three halves out. I'll get another fermion. But if I have a quark-antiquark pair, and I bind two of those together, I will get something that acts like a boson out. So odd numbers of fermions act like a fermion. Even numbers of fermions act like a boson. And the reason is just that same spin rationale. Fermions are plus or minus half integer particles. Bosons are plus or minus integer particles. And they have differing statistical and large-scale properties that go along with that. So in order to make a proton, you need to bind three quarks together. You need two up and one down quark that each have different colors from the other two. To make a neutron, it's one up and two down quarks. And of course, they will exchange gluons in order to stay bound. In order to make an atom, you need to build an atomic nucleus out of a combination of protons and neutrons and then add the requisite number of electrons electrons to balance the number of protons out. That's how you get an electrically neutral atom. By the same token, you can make an antiproton out of the same exact types of particles but with antiquarks and anti gluons, make antineutrons and anti nuclei that are heavier, and anti atoms by putting positrons or anti electrons on top of them. So by building up protons and neutrons and nuclei and adding electrons to them, or antiprotons and antineutrons and adding positrons to them, you can make neutral matter and antimatter that will be stable until they collide with their antimatter or matter counterparts. So just by starting with the basic building blocks of matter, quarks, gluons, electrons, and photons, we can construct all of the matter that we've ever observed here on Earth out of those ingredients. But there's one more fundamental difference between fermions and bosons that's required in order to make these complex structures, like molecules and things that atoms bind together to form. We need a fundamental law of our quantum universe, the Pauli Exclusion Principle. This rule is so simple, it says that no two identical fermions, so two electrons, two up quarks, two down quarks, etc., can occupy the same quantum state. That means they can't be in the same place and the same time and have all the same quantum number properties. It doesn't say anything about bosons. Bosons are free to all jump into the same quantum state if they like. There is nothing that forbids it. But the Pauli exclusion principle excludes two identical fermions in the same place at the same time from occupying the same quantum state. And this is very important because there are only a few specific rules that govern a quantum state things need to have the same energy level, the same spin, the same orbital angular momentum properties, and so on, in order to have the exact same quantum state. If you differentiate Any of those things, if you have a different state for any of those properties, then you are no longer an identical particle in the same quantum state. You're in a different quantum state. By the same token, if you have a different particle, if you replace an electron with a muon or a tau particle or a neutrino or a proton, then it no longer obeys those same exclusion rules. The Pauli exclusion principle only applies to identical fermions in the same quantum state. So how does this apply to build the universe? Let's take an example. Let's say you have an atomic nucleus that has a certain charge. Let's say it has a charge of 8, to it, an oxygen nucleus. It needs the same number of electrons as the charge of the nucleus in order to make a neutral atom. So we would need eight electrons in this example to bind to our oxygen nucleus in order to get a neutral oxygen atom out. So where does the first electron go? We add them one at a time. Well, Ideally, that first electron will go into the ground state. That's the 1s electron shell of this atom. That's the lowest energy level and the simplest orbital configuration you can have. Now, once you get your electron in there, you know all of its quantum properties except for its spin its spin can either be plus one-half, which we call spin up, or minus spin one-half, which we call spin down. Well, what if you need another electron, right? You need 8 for oxygen. So if you put your second electron in there, it can also go to that lowest energy level. It just has to have the opposite spin to the first electron. So if the first one was plus 1 half, the second needs to be minus 1 half. And if the first one was minus 1 half, the second needs to be plus 1 half. But now things get complicated when we go to add the third electron. It cannot be in that lowest energy level any longer. It has to jump up to the next energy state, which in this case is the 2s energy state. You can have up to two electrons in there also. You can have a spin one-half and a spin minus a half. As you get to stronger and stronger charges in your nucleus... You need more electrons. Hydrogen only needs one electron. Helium only needs two. That example of four would be beryllium. But if we have oxygen, you need to go to the 2p state. That's the next state up from the 2s state. And that one is split into three levels. You need one level for each of the three, the x, the y, and the z directions. So the 2p state can hold a total of six electrons. Each one can hold a spin plus 1 half and a spin minus 1 half electron. So arbitrarily, that fifth electron for oxygen will go into one of the X, Y, or Z states. The 6th electron will go into one of those unoccupied ones, so if you occupied X, it'll go into Y or Z. The 7th one will go into whichever one is left, and the 8th will randomly go into one of X, Y, or Z, but with the opposite spin. You can go to heavier elements, too. If you fill up the 2P state by hitting element 10, that's neon, then a heavier nucleus than that will need to go to the 3S state, and then the d orbital of electron configurations, and then the p orbital of electron configurations after that. So beyond this, as we build to heavier and heavier nuclei, we need to go to higher and higher energy levels just to have a stable neutral atom. The Pauli exclusion principle is what prevents all of the electrons from going into the same lowest energy state. There's a formula for how these energy states work. Every orbital has a lowest energy state in S orbital, which is spherical. There are the P orbitals that can go in one of three directions. There are also D orbitals, F orbitals, G orbitals, and so on up the alphabet that progressively higher and higher energy states will have. This arrangement of how electrons add themselves into atoms optimally in the lowest energy state is where the idea of the periodic table of the elements comes from. The Pauli exclusion principle, that principle that prevents electrons from having multiple electrons in the exact same energy state and configuration, is what forces you to go to higher and higher energy states for each new electron that you add. This principle is the foundation of basic chemistry and explains why the elements arrange themselves naturally into this periodic table. But it goes beyond that, too. The Pauli exclusion principle doesn't just provide the rules for atoms to follow, but unless atoms have a completed shell of electrons, in other words, unless that last S or P orbital is complete They're going to react with one another in unique ways as they try to obtain a mutually optimal configuration. This is why an oxygen atom needs to bind with something like two hydrogens in order to get those two extra electrons in its outermost shell. That's why you can have diatomic oxygen, O2, where two oxygen atoms bind together and each share two of their electrons between them. This explains how covalent and ionic bonds form. This binding, the Pauli exclusion principle, combined with the interactions between the nuclei and the electrons, and how electron shells between atoms interact, explains how covalent and ionic bonds form, why molecules develop, how electronegativity works, and, at a fundamental level, It's the basic law that governs how just a few simple ingredients that we conceive of as protons, neutrons, and electrons can give rise to the full suite of diversity and wonderfulness that we have in the world today. Basic molecular structures include a few larger atoms bonded to hydrogens. These are methane, ammonia, and water. We get more complex ones like cyanide, ethers, and hydrocarbons. And finally, by reacting them together in the presence of energy, we can start to obtain organic molecules. We can obtain sugars, amino acids, fatty acids, and the nitrogenous bases that are the fundamental groundwork for RNA and DNA. By binding all of these molecular configurations together with a little luck and a lot of chances, we can arrive at the molecules that can do the most remarkable things of all, encode information and instructions for creating other molecules, including copies of itself. With a little bit of good luck and the molecular rules that are set up by this fundamental quantum rule, the Pauli Exclusion Principle, we can possibly obtain a universe like the one we have, where molecules encode information, reproduce, and give rise to life. It's true, inorganic materials reproduce and make copies of themselves all the time, too, like crystals. But it's the combination of organic materials that do this, that reproduce and that make use of energy for processes that define life to the best of our knowledge, with a serendipitous outcome. Based only on atoms and the Pauli rule, we can arrive at the beginning steps of what life and all this complex structure on our world that surrounds us is all about. The Starts With A Bang podcast is all made possible thanks to the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. I would like to thank everyone publicly donating at the $5 a month level and above, including Ryan Schultz, Samir Kumar, Bakhtiar, Robert J. Hansen, Thomas Sola, Denier, Richard Jousey, Igor Mitrofanov, Kevin Freehart, Marcelo Barnaba, Jason Bassansini, Nick Tomlinson, Rafal Woischuk, Pedro Texera, Brian Terry, Danny Denise Arnaud, Alexander Marius, Guy Jin, Bob Wilson, Andrew T. Douglas, Chris Hilly. Weller Tractor Salvage, Steve Omohundro, Peter Williams, Bill Murphy, Mark Armstrong, Kevin Barnes, Patrick Dennis, Chris Shaw, Radek Nesbida, James Nance, Joe McFarland, Amira Sosnick, rachel merritt michael mason sydney atwood jose enrique harry plumley john methott nathan Hanna, thomas all glenn mcdavid benjamin turner david Tascioni, joe latone philip ratalevic dge john seal braxton thomason karen garrison and zarko apachic thanks everyone for tuning in and i'll see you next time here on starts with a bang